from the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, endophthalmitis and fourth-generation fluoroquinolones. Because we think that the bacteria are common from the patient's conjunctival flora, we want to decrease the amount of bacteria, thinking that by doing that, we decrease the chance of endophthalmitis. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Fayez declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. As seen from here, the first podcast for physicians, the first podcast to offer CME credit, and the first to offer multinational editions, is now co-sponsored by the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. The ASCRS recognizes the power of this new medium in communication and education of physicians everywhere. This partnership will allow us to bring new content to you and add new voices to our community. From Manhattan to Mumbai, from the Bay Area to Beijing, one conversation as seen from here. Endophthalmitis is such a dread complication of cataract extraction that all effective measures should be sought to prevent its occurrence. But while certain precautions carry the weight of evidence, others are little more than totems of surgeons seeking to influence the fates. Into which category do fourth-generation fluoroquinolones fall? My guest today, Vahid Fayez, has published results of a study which gives insight into this question. I asked Dr. Fayez how common post-cataract endophthalmitis is. What's, what's commonly cited in the literature in terms of rate of endophthalmitis is anywhere from 0.04% to 0.215%. And that variable range is partially because, you know, the studies have tried to determine and estimate the rate with different methods. Some have actually looked at, you know, there are several institutions. Some have looked at, one study looked at the Medicare billing records for endophthalmitis, and that's kind of how they estimated it. But that, that's, a, that's a, I think, a fairly commonly cited range. Now, having said that, has the rate of endophthalmitis been changing? There is some evidence that it has been. Probably the best study that showed that was a study from Hopkins by Emily West. And they actually looked at the Medicare billing, and they noticed that they looked at the rate of endophthalmitis from 1994 to 2001. And what they found out was that in the second half of that period, the rate of endophthalmitis was significantly higher than the first part of the period that they looked at. Um, They hypothesized that this may be due to the fact that um, most cataract surgeons switched from doing scleral tunnels to clear cornea incisions, and perhaps that may have contributed to the increased rate of endophthalmitis. Where did the bacteria that produce these infections come from? It's mostly commonly thought to be the normal ocular flora bacteria that live on the eyelid margins and on the conjunctiva, uh, mostly tend to be coagulase negative staph, um, followed by strep, and then some of the less common organisms. But it's commonly thought to be that the source tends to be the patient themselves. Now, here's a sort of loaded question. What is standard preoperative prophylaxis? (laughs) 
that is a loaded question. Um, uh, well, let me kind of back up. Uh, the whole goal in terms of putting people on medicine is that you want to treat, decrease the rate of endophthalmitis. And because we think that the bacteria are common from the patient's conjunctival flora, um, we want to decrease the amount of bacteria thinking that by doing that, we um, uh, decrease the chance of endophthalmitis. So to, one way of answering that question is that there is no standard way that has ever been proven to be superior to another one. Uh, there are certainly different ways of doing it, um, preoperative antibiotics, post-operative antibiotics, um, pre-operative antibiotics of different kinds, whether it be a third-generation fluoroquinolone or fourth-generation fluoroquinolone or other bacteria have certainly been used. Uh, but the only thing that has ever been shown to be of any benefit is, uh, actually, let me back up, the only way that has some good evidence of uh, decreasing the chance of endophthalmitis is using povidin iodine before you do the surgery. How do fourth-generation fluoroquinolones differ from third-generation fluoroquinolones? They are different in three different uh, aspects. One is that they have better gram-positive coverage than the old generation, than the third-generation fluoroquinolones. So you certainly get a better coverage of things like staph and strep um, uh, compared to the uh, third-generation fluoroquinolones like ciprofloxacin or, or fluoxacin. The uh, second way they differ is that they exert the antibacterial activity by inhibiting two different sites on the enzymes, the DNA gyrase enzymes. So they're really two different sites, the DNA gyrase and the topoisomerase, and they inhibit both of these sites. So in order for, theoretically, in order for uh, resistance to develop, you have to get two mutations. Um, as opposed to the third-generation fluoroquinolones where you only have one site of action. And finally, there's fairly good evidence that uh, the fourth-generation uh, fluoroquinolones penetrate better into the anterior chamber and potentially into the vitreous. So those are the three main ways that differ from the third-generation fluoroquinolones. What was the objective of your study? What we wanted to do is that... Um, we wanted to find out if using um, a fourth-generation fluoroquinolone really did decrease the chance of endophthalmitis or not. Now, there are risk factors for endophthalmitis that are commonly known, like older patients or most com but the biggest risk factor is that if there is an intraoperative complications, in other words, if you have a capsular tear and vitreous loss. What we wanted to do is look at as homogeneous of a group of patients as we possibly could. Um, and so we basically looked at many centers and we looked at their cataract surgery patients and we took a subgroup of these patients that all had uncomplicated surgery with clear cornea incision. So by making the patient's population more homogeneous, we try and narrow down to see what the, if the use of the preoperative and postoperative for generation fluoroquinolones did change the rate of endophthalmitis to what's been reported in literature. Can I have you describe the design of your study? Sure. This was a retrospective study. Uh, what we did, we started contacting um, different surgery centers around the country, and we ended up with a total of nine, nine high-volume cataract surgeries in seven states in the United States. 
And what we asked them to provide us with was the number of surgeries they did, the um, number of endophthalmitis cases they had observed, um, what preoperative antibiotics and what postoperative antibiotics they used, um, and uh, what was their method of surgery as well as the method of the anesthesia. And then we took all the data and we threw away all the patients who had not received um, um, fourth-generation fluoroquinolones before and after surgery. We threw out all the patients that had complications. We threw out all the surgeries that had other concurrent surgeries, like if it was cataract surgery and glaucoma surgery at the same time, or cataract surgery or retina surgery at the same time. And we ended up with a uh, population of patients that all had clear cornea, phacos with topical anesthesia, and all of the patients had received uh, preoperative fourth-generation fluoroquinolones as well as postoperative fourth-generation fluoroquinolones. And then we looked at the number of cases that had developed endophthalmitis. And you excluded patients that had sutured wounds too? Yes, that's, but we wanted to make sure that, in other words, if, if there was a wound that was sutured, we took it as an indication that there was a wound leak. Uh, we wanted it to be just as possibly as homogeneous as it could be, all clear cornea temporal incision wounds with uh, topical anesthesia. What cataract extraction techniques were included in this study? All phacos. How were the fourth-generation fluoroquinolones administered? In all of these patients, they either got um, gatafloxacin or moxifloxacin starting about an hour before the surgery. Um, and most of the surgery centers, they gave it about every 15 minutes or so for about one, starting one to one and a half hour before the surgery. And immediately at the end of the surgery, uh, fall, and right after the surgery, patients were instructed to use it four times a day for a week, and then after a week, it was stopped. What were your results? What we found out was that um, out of the, there was a total of uh, 20,013 surgeries that were included in this study. And of these, um, 14 cases of endophthalmitis occurred. So there were a total of 14 um, cases of endophthalmitis that um, occurred, and these were based on the findings of pain, vitreous cell, and decreased vision uh, that had presented. Um, and that corresponded to a rate of 0.07%. Um, of these 14 cases, um, 12 cases had had a vitreous tab by the uh, physicians that most of the times they were referred to retina specialists and they had a vitreous tab. 12 patients had um, a vitreous tab that was sent for cultures and out of these 12, 10 patients had a positive culture. Um, off, the positive, off the culture positive cases, five cases were GRU staph, uh, four of which was coagulase negative staph and one methicillin-resistant staph aureus. Four cases grew strep, and there was one case of pseudomonas. So again, majority of the cases were gram-positive organisms, which is, again, corresponds to what has been seen previously in other studies. Um, the, uh, there was no difference in terms of um, when, if you divided the subgroup, the patients to different subgroups of whether they'd gotten moxifloxacin or gatafloxacin, the numbers were different, but the difference did not reach statistical significance. In other words, um, there was there was if you look at the numbers, there was a difference of um, 
uh, in the gadafloxin group, the rate was 0.6%. In the moxifloxin group, the, the, the rate was 0.1%, but it w- did not reach statistical, statistical significance. Um, so basically, the rate of what we found was very similar to what's been reported in different um, in, in previous studies. So our conclusion was that at least in this subgroup of patients that we looked at that all had uncomplicated fake emulsification with clear cornea, didn't seem like you would expect the rate to be significantly lower than what has been reported, and it didn't seem to be. Just to sum things up, not only was there no statistical difference between the gadifloxacin group and the moxifloxacin group in terms of endophthalmitis rates, but the endophthalmitis rates that you observed with patients on these fourth-generation fluoroquinolones were similar to the rates that have been published even having said that you excluded patients who had any sort of complication with their surgeries. That's correct. Um, you you kind of have to, when you, when you interpret in data such as this, you kind of have to take it with caution, though, because the, we're looking with small rates of infection. We're, when you're looking at a, a, a complication that can happen with such a low occurrence rate, you have to be careful because... Um, in order to really be able to tell a difference, what you have to look at is look at hundreds and hundreds of thousands of patients um, and compare one antibiotic to the other one. And you have to have the control group versus the other control group versus the, the treatment group to have very similar characteristics. So since that study really can't be done, what you're left with is the studies such as ours or what's been done, looking at a subgroup of patients. So all we can say is that in this subgroup of patients, the rate of endophthalmitis was very similar to what's been reported in literature. And also in this group of patients, there was no difference between um, the two different antibiotics in terms of rate of endophthalmitis. Did you assay any of the bacterial cultures for resistance to fourth-generation fluoroquinolones? you remember this was a retrospective study, so we were just collect, um, we were collecting data that was available to us. Most of the time, um, the um, most of the labs at the time that some of these happened were not doing routinely um, uh, resistance testing for um, gadafloxacin, moxifloxacin. There was, um, however, some of them were done. Um, there was one case of MRSA, which was um, resistance to both GATI as well as uh, moxifloxacin. There was a case of Pseudomonas, which was sensitive to both moxifloxacin and gadifloxacin. And um, there was also one of the cases of the streptococcus cases that was that had testing for sensitivities against the two fourth generations, and it was um, sensitive to both of them. But the other seven positive cases did not have testing. If the bacteria are assumed to come from sort of resident flora, and in two of the three cases in which cultures were performed, uh, it was found that uh, the fourth generation fluoroquinolones did kill these bacteria. Then why do you think that these patients wound up with endophthalmitis? Well, I think there is a lot of factors that contribute to development of thymus, all of which I don't think we understand. Certainly, I think just having a good antibiotic um, would make sense that if you have an antibiotic that would 
um, have good activity against this organism should be able to prevent it. However, remember there's a lot of other things that could happen. For example, how much of the actual drug do you get into the eye, whether there was patient compliance or not. Um, and what was the, you know, the thought is that at the end of the case, you're going to have some bacteria in the anterior chamber. Uh, presumably, if the load of bacteria in the eye at the end of the case was high enough that the bacteria could start proliferating, um, maybe the dosing of four times a day afterwards is not enough to kill everything. Maybe some of these patients should have been on every two hours. Or maybe the penetration of when it gets to the vitreous may not, while we think that the ranges are therapeutic, maybe in some patients it doesn't get into it. So I don't think it's quite understood, and I don't think the antibiotic is the only factor here. There's, gonna, there's bound to be some patient factors the amount of bacteria that have gone into the eye, what location of the eye they've actually been able to take a hold of, and also patient compliance. I mean, just because the patients, have, you know, patients were instructed to take the drops power number of times, you can't guarantee that they've actually taken it, or if they're taking it correctly, some of these patients may have been elderly. So these are just some of the things that may have contributed to it. Is there evidence in the literature that you get more reduction of flora if you use the medications for longer than one hour pre-op? Um, not for these antibiotics per se, but there are some couple of other studies that have looked at some of the um, uh, older generation. There was one study um, done with ofloxacin a few years ago, and they compared the um, four times in a dosing versus every two-hour dosing, and they noticed that with every two-hour dosing, they actually did get some reduction. Now, does that mean in turn that you're going to get, you know, less endophthalmitis afterwards? Well, you know, that's a reasonable conclusion to take, but however, you know, it all, again, it comes down to will it make a difference or not? So, yes, there is some evidence that taking the antibiotics more frequently and for a longer period of time can lead to reduction of the ocular flora. Whether or not that translates to reduction in post-operative endophthalmitis is not established yet. What do you do in your own practice, Fahid? What I've done is that I have, I don't use preoperative antibiotics at all. I um, basically do um, a good um, scrub of the skin with 10% povidone iodine. We do put in 5% povidone iodine in the, um, in, in, in the cul-de-sac, a couple of drops, and we wait a few minutes before we start the case. Um, I make sure that all the wounds are, are completely tight. If not, I do put a suture in them. And I usually start uh, them on... Um, a third generation fluoroquinolone, something like ofloxacin or ciprofloxacin, um, and I continue using it for um, uh, four times a day for a week, and then I stop it. If the case is complicated, if there's a vitreous break, uh, if, if the capsular break with vitreous loss, um, I also do subconjunctival injection of antibiotics at the end of the case. But my routine has been pretty much no preoperative antibiotics and using a third generation fluoroquinolone afterwards. Is there anything you'd like to add, Vahid? Sure. There are a couple of other things that I think is, is worthwhile for us to know. Um, in addition to our study, there are a couple of really good studies that have um, come out in 2006 looking at um, uh, endophthalmitis as well as um, the response of bacteria to fourth-generation fluoroquinolone. Very good study came out in April of 2006, I believe, in the Archives of Ophthalmology from Baskin-Palmer by Darlene Miller. And very clever study. What they did is that 
they went back and they they went to their microbiology lab and they had saved all the isolates uh, that they had uh, gathered from endophthalmotic cases post-cataract surgery for about 15 years. And they looked at and they took out all the coagulase negative staph that had been isolated over that 15 years and they decided we're going to do some sensitivity testing for um, uh, fluoroquinolones, all the third generation and all the fourth generation of fluoroquinolone to these, to, these, to these bacteria. And what they found out was that overall they had, they had come up with something like 111 isolates. They found that, that 25 to 30 percent of all the coagulase negative staff that they had isolated were resistant either to moxifloxacin or gadafloxacin. They also found out that if they divided the period into two groups, the ones from 1990 to 1994 were almost 97 percent sensitive to four-generation fluoroquinolones, but the isolates that had been collected later from 2000 to 2004 were almost 60, only 65 percent sensitive. So you've gone from 97% sensitivity to 65% sensitivity over the course of four years. That's a tenfold reduction in sensitivity. So clearly, despite the fact that we think that it's difficult to develop resistance against these um, uh, antibacterials, they are happening. And there are different mechanisms that people have uh, thought about. One is that the bacteria develop these pumps that actually pump the medicine out of the intracellular um, uh, cytoplasmic fluid. So that might be one mechanism of resistance. So clearly, we are getting resistance, and that resistance is happening a lot faster than we thought. It took about 10 years for um, third-generation fluoroquinolones to become resistance to, uh, for the bacteria to become, to develop large resistance to third-generation fluoroquinolone, but that's happening a lot faster with the fourth generation. The second study that actually looked at this was a study that also came out in AJO last year, and this came out of a retina group. And they had looked at their two-year um, patients that had been referred to them with endophthalmitis after cataract surgery. And they looked at all these patients, and they looked at the patients that had received fourth-generation fluoroquinolones, and they found out 42 patients that had developed endophthalmitis after cataract surgery. Now, they don't say in their study whether these cases were complicated or not, but of these, um, a, uh, a large number of these patients grew coagulase negative staph, and almost 50% of those isolates were resistant to both moxifloxacin and gadafloxacin. So again, I think we're, we're, what we're seeing here is that we're seeing a very rapid development of resistance against these bacteria, against these or, uh, medicines, and I think it's just going to get worse the way we've been using it. Vahid, thank you very much. Thank you, and have a good night. Vahid Fayez is assistant professor and the director of the Refractive Surgery Services at the UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento, California. His paper, Endophthalmitis After Uncomplicated Cataract Surgery with the Use of Fourth-Generation Fluoroquinolones, a Retrospective Observational Case Series, is in press in ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Fayez or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. 
Call our listener response lines in the United States style area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.